Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, Christian Schiller. Or maybe I should call the show the increasingly inaccurately titled Weekly Squeak. Something more like the fortnightly squeak or the bi-weekly or the every two weeks squeak right now. But uh, I'm getting back into cadence again. Do apologize. But I have a very good show for you. I have some interesting links. And I have an interview with David Nally, the ASF, the Apache Software Foundation Executive Vice President, fresh from ApacheCon here in Berlin last week. So I have that to look forward to. But let's kick off with some links. First is an article from Messi Nessie. The Cabinet of Chic Curiosity is not a blog I've come across before, but this popped up in my feed somehow. This is an article called How the World's First Floating Hotel Ended Up as a Doomed Wreck in North Korea. This is the, the quite wonderful story of the floating hotel uh, from Townsville in North Queensland in Australia. I have been to Townsville um, and uh, I'm half Australian. My wife is fully Australian and neither of us have ever heard of this place. It looks quite fascinating. Built in 1988, it's like, yeah, you have to look at the blog to see the photos. It's, it's, it, it looks like some kind of floating fortress, but it was a luxury hotel. But, um, of course, whenever you have such an ambitious project, it was not deemed to be. So it was built in a Singaporean shipyard in the 80s and then towed into position. It had tennis courts, it had a disco, it had a bar, it had a, obviously a boat you had to take to to get there. Um, towed out to near the Great Barrier Reef, opened in February 1988. And then there was a tropical cyclone, which happens quite a lot in North Queensland, which damaged a lot. And then they discovered that the position it had been towed to, there were more than 100,000 pieces of World War II ammunition with anti-tank mines resting on the seabed below. I have no idea where they came from, if they were from the Allies or from the Axis or from the Japanese, I guess, but <laughs> 100,000 is quite a lot. So the hotel was closed within a year, pretty much. It then ended up in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, uh, where it ended up as actually quite a popular nighttime entertainment for almost a decade and then had some more financial difficulties. I guess that was its heyday. And there's some lovely photos there, although it's just kind of outside. It's not floating off in the middle of the ocean. It's just sort of floating to the side of the city. And then in 1997, it was finally bought by North Korea and moved to the tourist region near the demilitarized zone uh, in 1998 as a north-south experiment in tourism. So <laughs> actually, North and South Koreans would stay in this hotel. And if you see photos from this time, it's starting to look a little worn and dated and not quite as... Uh, it's still just sort of floating off um, off the side of a, of, a, of the land, so it just looks like a hotel on a on a, a small island, really, than a floating hotel. Um, and there are even some reviews of the hotel from Western tourists, which is <laughs> quite fascinating, and some lovely pictures of what they did with it, full of all sorts of strange communist-style vistas. So it became basically a reunion location for uh, families who'd been split by the the war. Then after, in 2008, when that uh, experiment ended for various reasons, the floating hotel was sort of quiet and just sat there looking rather ghostly, um, but was open to a few tourists here and there. But also it hadn't been maintained for some time, so it was kind of dangerous to enter. And now the North Korean government um, have said they're going to revive it. They're going to maintain it. Um, and they don't entirely understand, although, of course, there's going to be a limited amount of people who know this, that it has something of a cult following in Australia, despite the fact I said I didn't have heard of it. But anyway, um, 
It failed an inspection from Kim Jong-un himself. Uh, it's shabby and had no character, but apparently they are planning to revive it or maybe demolish it. Who knows? It's North Korea, so we don't really know. But anyway, quite a fascinating tale, and the photos are wonderful, so I do recommend you go and take a look at this blog post. Continuing in Australia news, kind of. Uh, this is a, a few a few weeks old now, but as I say, I... Uh, <laughs> I got a little bit uh, behind. These are various tales, and I'm picking on, in particular, uh, one in Bloomberg from Angus Whitley and one in the Sydney Morning Herald from Patrick Hatch. These were reports on Qantas's first 20-hour flight. Qantas is planning to do these long-distance connecting flights, one from New York to Sydney and one from Sydney to London, uh, to have a long 20-hour stretches. And that said, I have definitely been on a flight, I think, from Melbourne to Dubai, which was 16 or 17 hours. So... It's only in the grand scheme of things, and especially in the grand scheme of Australian travel, a few more hours than some of the current routes. Um, and what three more hours amongst friends, really? The interesting thing I found with these, I mean, firstly, all the test passengers were traveling in business class, not in cattle class, which is going to make things a lot easier. They obviously also had people being very attentive to their health, feeding them well, giving them plenty of space for exercise and things like that, which you're not going to get in normal planes, although the head of Qantas has said that these very long-distance flights will have a bit more space, which probably also means they're going to be a little bit more expensive, but well, time is money, I suppose, to some people. And actually, the interesting thing reading this is really it didn't seem like that much of a struggle, that much of a difficulty. In these near-perfect conditions, of course, it didn't seem that hard for them to adjust. Um, they didn't feel that tired. They felt physically fine. So who knows, possibly in the very near future, and Qantas is pushing quite heavily for this, um, this will be a reality. And I mean, it, it's actually kind of amazing. You, you could, in theory, go from one side of the world to the other in a day and a half. Um, although you can also do it the other way around. You go uh, Sydney to LA and then LA to to New York. I don't know if that's shorter or not. I'm not sure. Um, but especially the uh, Sydney to London is uh, 20 hours, 30 minutes, and Sydney to New York is 19 hours, 30 minutes. Um, at least the one to London is flying over land most of the time. The one to America is flying over the sea most of the time. Um, but yeah, quite fascinating. This is the new Boeing Dreamliner. I have been on one of the older ones. Uh, they're very nice planes. Qantas has obviously, due to its geolocation, a history of very long-distance flights and having planes that are good at coping with it. And they've been experimenting with the Perth to London flight, which is 17 hours, I think. And um, I, I think this is going to come in the next two years maximum. Um, and we will see what happens and how popular they are. Um, and if the stopover is a thing of the past. And I think this is actually, between you and me, one of the subtexts of why Qantas want to do this. Because they have to pay tax, and so do passengers, in wherever they stop over. So this also, in theory, reduces the cost for the airline and maybe for passengers if they follow on with that. Next, I always like a bit of role play. This is actually an article from issue 27 of Dragon Magazine uh, from Martin Chapman. I was reading Dragon Magazine and there was a really interesting article about Dungeons and Dragons played with sign language and specifically around, uh, obviously, firstly, one thing you may not realize is that even in English, there are different sign languages for British English, American English, and I think Australian English, although I'm not how sure how similar that might be to British English. But of course, 
sign language being a language used by a smaller selection of the population, sometimes there are words that just don't exist, including things like Dungeons and Dragons concepts and monsters. So this was mostly an article about how people who wanted to sign roleplay games or play games with sign language, how they made up words for creatures and concepts. <laughs> things like rolling for initiative, a natural 20, things like I have the beholder, and things like that. And there are some videos uh, in here where you could watch from an American signer and a British signer doing, uh, yeah, so this is uh, Dungeons and Dragons itself, uh, roll for perception, uh, beholder, elf, <laughs> it is what you might expect. <laughs> this is, um, orc, Demogorgon. <laughs> and there are performances with uh, live signing, which I find amazing. So thankfully, you don't have to subscribe to Dragon Magazine, which is free. You can actually just follow this link and read it yourself. And uh, yeah, I would love to watch one of these games one day. I think I will to see some of the other words that people have had to come up with. And these are people doing it in their spare time, of course. Digging now into one of my favorite recurring topics, computer history. This is a post from the Computer History Museum by David C. Brock. The earliest Unix code, an anniversary source code release. So 2019 has marked the 50th anniversary of the start of Unix in the summer of 1969. And of course, Unix has fed Linux, has fed BSD Unix, which is in Mac OS, and all sorts of other operating systems. It has quite a checkered History, of course, from proprietary to non-proprietary and back and forth and back and forth and trade wars and copyright wars and all sorts of things. But still, um, its, its heritage is everywhere. It was created in Bell Telephone Labs by mostly by Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie, um, who were trying to build a new operating system. And like so many stories in computing history, it was a story of what nearly wasn't. It was kind of a side project that ended up becoming a very successful project instead. It nearly was cancelled. They had to beg, steal, borrow for computing time, as was what one had to do then, to try this, and eventually was successful. Um, and the rest, they say, is history. There's some great pictures here of Ken Thompson and Dennis Ritchie uh, programming, <laughs> not in any way that would look familiar to many of us now. And this was still even in the 70s. And now the Software History Center at the Computer History Museum has publicly accessible some of the earliest source code produced in the Unix story. And these are papers, of course. These are papers from Dennis Ritchie by the Ritchie family. And there's a black binder with a hand label of Unix Book 2 containing nearly 190 pages of printed source code listings written in PDP7 assembly code. So we can have a look at some of this. All right, are you ready? See, this looks like a space travel listing. Um, there's like a dictionary of words. And then, yeah, <laughs> lots of semicolons. I don't really understand this. But if you do, maybe you could dig in and see how people used to code on paper, I guess. Um, enjoy. And finally, this is a post from Andre Stoltz. This was uh, highlighted to me in a presentation I recently saw on uh, kind of funding open source. This has become a big topic in recent history. This this is actually, I might actually get Andre on the podcast at some point in the near future to talk about this in more detail. This is a post from June this year called Software Below the Poverty Line. And it's something of an analysis of, um, I guess, funding to open source projects versus the perceived time that people put into them. That highlights that so many of the most successful open source projects, developers are basically, in theory, working for wages um, that 
are below the poverty line. And of course, we know that in reality, a lot of these developers are probably working side gigs, but they're putting in this extra time anyway, which, which should still be recognized. And actually, he, he, he tracks a lot of the data here. It's, it's quite an interesting uh, post and you can really see some details. There are very few projects where, um, the developers, and this is again, the core developers, not all contributors are actually making a living wage or better from their work. Most of them are not. And again, again, I say this with the caveat that, of course, most of these developers probably have jobs, but still they're putting a lot of extra time. I, I think I, mean, I can't quite remember if this article does recognize people who are getting paid by companies to maybe contribute to that project. It's hard to always know. But still, it sort of uh, opens your eyes to the amount of work, and he, and he calls it exploitation, that a lot of developers are doing um, or well, are victims of to to create software that we use in many things. And this doesn't even start to factor in things like dependencies where you have um, a project that maybe is well-funded but it uses a significant as a significant dependency another project which isn't. How does that work? This is something that is coming up quite a lot in discussions recently. And it's a fascinating conversation that many people are proposing solutions to, but we yet to see if any of these solutions will be successful, of course. And that was my links for the week in a very appropriate uh, connect there. Now enjoy my interview with David Nally, the Executive Vice President of the Apache Software Foundation from ApacheCon here in Berlin. I have cleared up most of the background noise, but there's a little bit of murmur in the background. But um, there you go. Enjoy. So my name is David Nally. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Apache Software Foundation. I actually, uh, I mean, it might have just been the 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 talks and the people who gave the talks but apache foundation seems to have lots of vice presidents what what do they is it because it's a foundation is that just what everybody does or what do the vice presidents actually do within the foundation sure. so uh, there are there are a lot of vice presidents if you if you go to uh, one of our foundation pages that lists all of them uh, you'll find out that there's more than 200 which is which is sizable um, but essentially, each project, each top-level project at the Apache Software Foundation has its own officer, and that officer is the vice president of uh, that particular project. And that allows that particular officer to um, to execute contracts or make decisions on, on some external matters to give the project uh, a degree of independence and being able to, to actually get things done rather than having to come back to a central organization and asking permission. Uh, so yes, each, each project has an officer uh, that uh, is an officer of the foundation can, can go and get things accomplished in that regard. Uh, and then the foundation has a, set of um, foundation-specific officers. So uh, vice president of security, legal affairs, uh, fundraising, infrastructure, et cetera, that are, that are kind of those centralized services uh, that the foundation runs. And then we have four executive officers, the treasurer, uh, the chairman and vice chairman of the board of directors, the president and executive vice president. Maybe we went too we, too soon. We didn't really explain for maybe those who haven't encountered um, the Apache Software Foundation. What is the Apache Software Foundation and what, in a nutshell, does it do? 
So the Apache Software Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit public benefit charity. Uh, that means it's a U.S. corporation. Uh, and by law, its obligation is to serve in the public good. So our focus is um, being a benefit to the public at large. Uh, the ASF has its mission of, um, of producing software and releasing software free of charge to the public. And, uh, and that's our mission. Now, the foundation itself, i.e. the the people who, um, the board of directors and and the executive officers, we don't actually produce any software ourselves. Uh, we do provide some scaffolding and some resources for projects to um, to help them deliver software, and we provide essentially a uh, governance model. Uh, a license, a set of known good uh, intellectual property processes that allow the the projects that come and call the ASF home to have a known process for being able to then focus on actually releasing software. And this is somewhat typical of many software foundations. There's a couple of exceptions, but they don't usually produce anything. I've actually interviewed... Uh, Brian, I always forget to pronounce his surname. Yeah, who's now at Hyperledger a couple of times, and that's one thing he was saying to me. It's like, yeah, we don't we don't make anything. No one codes anything here. <laughs> um, would you say that ASF was the the first open source, and I'm putting that in quote marks for now, uh, foundation, or were there ones before it? I believe, and I'm I'm certainly open to being fact-checked here, I believe that maybe the Free Software Foundation predates us. Uh, we certain, I don't think we were the first, but we were certainly very early and, and remain one of the, uh, the longer-lived entities. A number of entities that have sprung up over the years, sadly, have... Um, have either not evolved or have not been sustainable uh, over that that uh, the past twenty years or so, and that's why I put open sourcing in quote marks to begin with. So I'm guessing if the FSF was first, then they're probably the ones who also maybe coined the term open source first because I know it it's not it's not necessarily a, an old term. People were doing open source before it was called open source, but it, it wasn't Apache, I guess. Yeah. So Apache did not originate the term open source. I, the, the Free Software Foundation um, also will not claim that they coined the term open source. Uh, and, and, you know, there's always a bit of contention around is it open source or is it free software or is it free Libra open source software? So. Yes, we won't go into that right now. That's a difficult subject to, to breach right now. So. I'm happy to talk about VI and Emacs too if you want another controversial subject. Not really, no. <laughs> I'm using Visual Studio Code. We'll just ignore that problem. Um, so you, you touched on it a little bit lightly, but to the projects that are part of or come under the ASF, what do you provide to them? So... We provide a base level of infrastructure, so project websites, version control, backups for all of those things, access control uh, functionality. We provide uh, legal resources that they can take advantage of to do things like review licensing, uh, in some cases review contracts with external parties. 
we provide uh, a very base level of um, brand management and also public relations management. Uh, so if there's something really notable, we have a press team that can uh, generate press releases and help uh, deal with press interviews. Uh, if there's a trademark uh, that needs to be registered, we have folks that can do that. Uh, really, though, I think when you talk about what the, the value proposition is, because most of those things are are commodity or easily obtainable, it, it's pretty trivial to go set up a project website. It's pretty trivial to get version control. I think the true value add that the ASF has is we have a known governance model that seems to work for a lot of projects. It's not the only one that works, but uh, it is uh, something that's been proven over time to work and people know what to expect from it. We also have a set of IP policies that again, uh, they've been proven over time. People know what to expect. Uh, and that's both people who are contributing inside the project as well as consumers. Uh, so there's, there's very little surprise there. And I think that uh, those are really the, the value proposition for the ASF is that um, while it might may not be the only successful model, we have a model that projects can come adopt and, and has been proven over time. Um, and the thing that interested me when you talk about what you provide to projects, obviously there are some projects that are much bigger than others. Um, and are these resources you provide mandated? Like if someone decides they want to use a different version control system or a different website, are they able to? So we try and mandate as little as possible. Uh, you know, we have folks who have really massive projects and need to run their own continuous integration systems, and they're free to do that. Uh, in terms of what we actually mandate that folks use, um, use our mailing list so that we have a record of decision making. Uh, that's actually been important in the past where we've been. Uh, sent subpoenas uh, for legal cases asking for our mailing list records so that they could find out who contributed source code, who was making decisions about a project. Uh, so that's really a prominence issue for us. Uh, so the place where you make decisions uh, has, to, has to live with the ASF. And source code, we have to have control over the source code. And so generally that's going to be Git or Subversion. Um, if you want to use something different, I have some questions. Yeah, yeah, yes, and and so so mirrors are are certainly an option, and you, that's what we used to do with GitHub uh, before we introduced some native functionality around uh, controlling access there. Uh, but you know, the code and and the decisions you're making around the code are the things that that are really mandated. If you want to use a bug tracker or CI system elsewhere. Um, we even have some folks that are uh, working on moving websites out from inside our, our things. So we try and um, mandate as little as possible. And a lot of that mandate really does come back to the legal requirements that, that we've been forced to deal with over time. Yeah. 
One of the things that's actually interested me most about the ASF is understanding when or why uh, a project becomes under the auspices. Um, and you have the, the sort of incubated projects and the graduated projects. But how does a project even start that journey? Do you approach them or do they approach you or is it a bit of both? And, and what do you... What, what does everyone look for, I suppose? <laughs> so we rarely, uh, I, would, I would probably say almost never do we go out and proactively uh, approach a project. Um, it is, uh, as I've talked about elsewhere, we're not set out on a strategy to be the dominant open source foundation in the world. We're not trying to collect projects. Uh, we want to make sure that projects are a good fit for the foundation because the way that the foundation operates and the governance model that we have is not necessarily a fit for every project. And that's okay. Uh, there, there's a lot of other models of developing software that work equally well. Uh, and so we want to make sure that our governance model and our culture is a fit for projects. Uh, Typically, the way a project comes into the ASF is they will want to join us for a myriad of reasons. And that could be anywhere from, uh, I want to make sure the project survives uh, a single founder, or uh, we want to build trust in the community, and that doesn't happen because a single vendor currently controls a project. Uh, there's a whole host of reasons that the projects are... Um, choose might want to, to show up at the ASF. And some of it is they may want uh, um, just a known process. Uh, I think in, uh, in the early days of the foundation, I think there was also, these guys have a few technical resources. And I think that that has slowly uh, drifted away because frankly, you can go to GitHub and walk away with a website and bug tracking and everything pretty easily. Um, but essentially the process is, is that uh, a project will approach and we'll, we'll start having a conversation, make sure that they understand uh, what they're getting themselves in for, uh, because things like uh, dealing with the uh, our IP regimen uh, for around copyright and licensing uh, can be pretty stressful for a project, especially if they've got a long history and, and have to have to figure out software grants and things of that nature for a wide swath of people. Um, we also want them to have a good understanding of how we actually operate in terms of governance and how projects make decisions, because frankly, that's foreign to a lot of yeah. a lot of open source projects, uh, particularly if it's uh, coming out of a company where you have product managers and product owners making decisions. Uh, and then developers that essentially have marching orders then to, to uh, deliver that. And so we try and educate them on what the Apache Software Foundation actually is and how it operates and how a project is expected to operate. And then they submit a proposal and they tell us a little about themselves and why they want to join the Apache Software Foundation and the incubator project, the, that project management committee will actually um, review that, maybe comment on it, and uh, and then um, vote whether to accept that into the incubator or not. And uh, that gets you, quote unquote, into the Apache Software Foundation. It doesn't give you the level of independence that a top level project has, but that that gets you started. 
and then you're trying to um, you're trying to demonstrate uh, while you're in the incubator that you can govern your govern your project according to our model uh, that you're making consensus-based, transparent uh, decision-making that the people actually driving the project are the, the people doing the work and that uh, the project actually has a community around it and is able to grow. Are there, but it, it, sometimes it does seem that there's particular themes within some of the projects that ASF tends to take on. Is that true or is it, you know, sometimes like, birds of a feather flock together type thing or are there, are there sort of types of projects you're likely to probably say this isn't a good fit to so historically I, I, we've turned away um, we've turned away some projects that were maybe not in our wheelhouse uh, so we've had some things like hardware projects approaches yeah. and, and frankly we didn't so we we've had we've had actual folks bring want to bring hardware designs, uh, so chip designs to the ASF, and um, we were kind of scratching our heads there. I, I do think there are themes, right? So big data is obviously a, a theme that you could say, but there's no strategy that says we're going to go become the dominant big data player. Uh, I think most of the big data folks showed up after you know we had frankly Lucene yep. and Lucene spawned Hadoop and then suddenly because everything else wanted to be in that same ecosystem those projects started showing up and so uh, it was it, it's less a strategic decision that was made than oh wow apparently we're we're the home for big data um, uh, so I, I do think it's that birds of a feather are, are showing up together in a lot of cases. And then also you've, you've, you've acquired projects that maybe might have died without it, like things like um, Open Office, which is not particularly in fitting with a lot of the rest of the portfolio, but it was an important project and it was, you know, had the potential to maybe not have anyone look after it if no one took it over. Yes, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a number of projects that have come to us that um, perhaps otherwise wouldn't have had a home. Um, uh, our concern, again, you know, our mission is to release software for the public uh, or to the public free of charge. Um, but we have to act in a way that is consistent with the public good. So making sure that there is a... Uh, community around those projects. Uh, frankly, we don't want a bunch of uh, of zombie projects uh, with dead code that no one's paying attention to. That's that's not good for for anyone. Uh, so, you know, kind of our threshold there is that um, we're looking for projects to have a uh, minimum set of folks who are paying attention and. Generally, that number is around three. Uh, and so if you can muster three people who will actually commit to uh, paying attention to what's going on, responding to security issues, and making sure that those are timely dealt with, uh, then, then we're not terribly worried. Three may not be the right number for some projects because some projects are massive. Uh, and, you know, but three is kind of that minimum, minimum viable, uh, uh, project level. It's also a magic number for trusted systems. <laughs> yes. 
um, you started to lead into it a little bit there, but I was wondering, are there ever times when a project is asked to leave or asked to leave? Um, may, maybe it's a, a zombie project or maybe, you know, open source is interesting at the moment with some commercial interests growing. And it may be that a new owner of a, of a smaller company that used to maintain it is now doesn't really align any longer and, and things like that. Uh, are there any times that's happened? Um, there there obviously are times where um, where we've discovered that um, perhaps a project isn't a good fit or the project discovers that the ASF might not be a good fit for their particular project community. Uh, generally, that happens in the incubator. Um, I, I wish that it, it was discovered long before they, they invest the energy to join the incubator. But we've had uh, we've certainly had that happen where either a project was not able to maintain um, a growing community or their community culture did not mesh with the ASF's culture. And so they have gone on to other things. Um, but, you know, frankly, rarely is it the case that... Uh, uh, I, I can't envision a, a situation where um, a corporate interest would take it out. I think that would actually be a, a legal challenge um, for us to do because as a public benefit corporation, um, I, I don't think we could just turn over and say, hey, go develop this software uh, in a proprietary manner. Um, I, I think there would be uh, be some legal challenges just because the obligations we have under U.S. law as a as nonprofit charity, um, uh, there are certainly times where we have seen private companies fork an Apache project. Um, a number of those times, they end up coming back because the overhead of keeping up with the outside project and their own internal fork is too expensive. So. Uh, you know, it, it really depends upon uh, projects specifically, but uh, certainly, you know, I I think that um, I think we've seen a number of times where projects discover that they're not a good fit for our culture, and they go they're you know, in many cases successful on their own, and that's great. You and a couple of the other speakers this morning mentioned several times, and I don't know if there was an allusion to something that I wasn't aware of, uh, protections from aggression. Um, I was intrigued to know what this meant. It, it, it was mentioned quite a couple of times. Um, and, yeah, what, is that the, the legal frameworks you provide, or is it around the IP type work, or what, what does that mean exactly? So I think especially in the early years, uh, there was there was a lot of concern around uh, individuals being responsible for the code that they shipped. And one of the protections that the ASF uh, aspires to provide for all of its projects is serving as a legal shield to shield the individual contributors. Um, I think, uh, you know, for better or worse, the, the ASF has seen more than its fair share of, um, of legal issues. And generally that's us getting a subpoena or, um, we've even had a couple of times where, uh, Congress has sent us uh, a series of questions, uh, because, Apparently, open source is important, and and they don't quite understand it. So, uh, please tell us about all these things that are uh, uh, vital to national security. And 
so uh, the foundation uh, hopes to provide a resource that can actually respond to that and shield shield our individual contributors from uh, from receiving subpoenas and having to deal with scary things that require attorneys. Fair enough. Now, we, we, we started skirting around this issue a little bit earlier, but I would be interested to know, because in one of your last slides, you were showing the things around in- inclusivity and diversity. Um, not just on that, but there have been some examples recently of other uh, open source software foundations having some problems uh, with some of their figureheads, you know, the kind of benevolent dictator, some just having had enough and, and wanting to retire, as it were, some maybe leaving in less uh, happy circumstances. So what does the ASF do to prevent someone becoming maybe too dominant and too dependent, too, too, too depended upon uh, that, they, that it would be very difficult for things to run without? And, and I suppose as well, also passing that same feedback on to the projects you look after as well. Right. So um, we've, been, we've been pretty allergic to the idea of a benevolent dictator, just as a, our culture. Uh, and, you know, frankly, every year board seats are up for election, every board seat, which means that once a year we could elect a completely different group of people. Uh, so that's one thing. I think there's also been a huge focus on, um, getting folks involved. Uh, you know, my goal as, as the executive vice president is not to be the executive vice president for the rest of my life. Um, and I know that a number of the other executive officers and board members have something similar. They're they're wanting to play their part today, and then grow the the rest of the community to end up uh, taking over for that. Um, one of the things that has been was shared with me the first time I took uh, a leadership position at the ASF was, all right, now your first job is to go find your replacement, and. Uh, so very rarely will you see, um, very rarely will you see some very dominant personality come out. Uh, and as a matter of fact, I think a number of the, um, of the founders have, have taken a visible step back, uh, to make sure that, that that isn't the case. So I, I, frankly, I think it's part of our culture to, to make sure that, that, uh, uh, we don't. We have uh, decision making by consensus, both at the project level and at the foundation level. And uh, you know, while some of us may take on a a leadership role at a point in time, it's not. Uh, uh, we're not setting up dynasties or fiefdoms that's built around that. Um. Actually, before I kind of get to some wrap up questions, one thing that we haven't really spoken about very much. Um, We've talked about the the, governor, the governance of projects that you provide, but obviously a lot of people also know Apache for the license or licenses, I'm not 100% sure, uh, as well as the uh, HTTP web server, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> um, how, much of, how much of the foundation's work is around around the license and i'm guessing it probably doesn't change a massive amount particularly regularly but you know what's what does the work involve and what's the percentage of that around that and what does it kind of mean to the foundation i guess 
first. So the uh, the license has been relatively static over the years. Uh, we've had uh, uh, we've had a, the occasional revision, but by occasional revision, I'm talking greater than a decade since the last one. Um, so. Uh, in terms of impact, I think the Apache license and, and some of the other licensing work that happens at the Apache Software Foundation is hugely impactful, hugely uh, adopted. But in terms of the actual work that goes on at this point, not very much. I mean, there's there's constantly a review to check for compatibility for new licenses that arise. But it, uh, you know, I don't think anybody's planning an Apache 3.0 license. Um, I think we've been very happy with uh, version two, and I don't see a need for that changing in, in anywhere on the horizon. I'm guessing a quick aside question. I would assume, but I might be wrong, that projects that become under the auspices have to use that license. So projects that um, for code developed at the ASF, it is licensed under Apache License 2.0. Uh, dependencies, uh, we have an entire, an entire compatibility chart for, for that. But for software developed at the ASF, it is licensed under the Apache License. So we're here at uh, ApacheCon in Berlin, I think the second or third time you've done it here, but actually celebrating 20 years, 20 years since, um, I guess, the discussions around starting something like this. Um, so 1999, which does not seem like 20 years ago, which is a bit sad, but that's another. <laughs> um, in your knowledge and your experience anyway, I, I don't think you've been with the foundation for 20 years. So just to what you know, what would you say have been some of the, the biggest challenges? And what do you think will be some of the biggest challenges moving forward? It, you know, so I think uh, some of the biggest challenges that I've seen have been uh, how we manage growth. Um, even when I joined the foundation, which has not been that long ago, uh, it felt like uh, a, a collaboration of, of friends, uh, and, and it was easy to, to become friends with everyone. And you you could get a sense of things that were going on in the foundation. You could you could grasp uh, the breadth of projects. Even when I when I joined, in, which is relatively late uh, today, I think that's that's a bigger challenge. We have two hundred top level projects in really varied areas. Everything from low-level um, IoT platforms to big data, and so it's a much, much larger challenge to understand the breadth of what's going on. It also means that you're a little more disconnected from other people at the ASF who are working on challenging things. It's actually one of the reasons I think ApacheCon is really valuable because I get to interact with you know people who are writing software for IoT platforms, which is completely outside of my uh, experience. Uh, and I get to see folks who are working on big data and, and all of these other interesting things. We happen to be in a, in a common space. Uh, so I think one of the challenges has been how do we sustainably grow without growing so fast that, that we dilute our value and, and dilute our culture. 
Um, and I think I think that's been a challenge and will continue to be a challenge because part of the part of the value that I hope that we deliver is that um, our governance model and our culture is something that we can pass on, and that becomes. Uh, a more difficult proposition as you continue to scale up. Final question, which we possibly should have opened with, but um, what projects have you worked on or do work on uh, that are part of the ASF? So I first joined the Apache Software Foundation working on a project called CloudStack and uh, helped bring that through the incubator uh, and uh, become a top-level project. And occasionally I'll still work on that, although not very frequently. I've also worked on JClouds. Uh, I've helped mentor a few projects coming into the incubator. Uh, and as a matter of fact, just sent a proposal out for a new one uh, that is a project coming from uh, Tencent that they want to open source and, and make available, uh, bring it to the Apache Software Foundation for governance and, and community. Um, and that's called TubeMQ. Uh, once I showed up at the ASF, I realized that um, I could start working in other areas. So I worked um, as a volunteer on infrastructure, brand management. Uh, I try and pretend like I know something about public relations. I don't really, but Sally lets me hang out on the mailing list anyway. Um, and so I've had the opportunity to work on a lot of software projects and a lot of the operational side as well. Actually, if I may ask one more question, because it's something you said there that just uh, sparked an interest. Um, dis- it was sort of mentioned in one of the first keynotes around um, that at the moment the, the foundation is, is based in Delaware, or still is, I guess. Um, and so you tend to have this slight American skew, although we are here in Europe, and there's often a little bit of discombobulation there sometimes but you mentioned a project from Tencent I know Apache Flink has also just been kind of acquired by Alibaba uh, there's a you know there's a lot more open source coming out of Asia now how how will the foundation maintain these kind of uh, cultural um cultural differences but i guess bridge those bridge those differences moving forward i mean europe and us we kind of understand each other most of the time <laughs> but going into asia is going to be more challenging and how do you think the foundation will and, and should bridge those differences um so two things before we start into that first of all you can't acquire flink because no, yeah they yeah they, they acquired data artisans right um the uh, so an interesting statistic that we've been tracking over the past couple of years is that China is now our largest consumer. Thirty uh, percent of our web traffic comes from China today, and by volume, that by country volume, that is the largest consumer of our um, of our of downloads and, and things of that nature. So uh, they've long they've long held that for at least the past three years. They've been our our largest consumer. We have had um, probably a good half dozen Chinese-originated projects that have become top-level projects. But I think that is, uh, you know, we talked a a little bit earlier about diversity and inclusion and and how we pass on the culture. I I do think that's a real challenge for us uh, because... um, 
you know, the world is bigger than a bunch of bearded white guys who are in America and uh, making making the Apache Software Foundation welcoming and accessible to folks who may not natively speak English or maybe not don't even have a um, professional proficiency with English is one of those challenges that I think is out in front of us. Um, and I do think there's a there's a little bit of a cultural barrier, particularly with Asia, because you know we're kind of used to the oddities of Americans, and we're kind of used to the oddities of Europeans, and that has historically been our strong base. Um, but there are a lot of there are a lot of folks who are um, who are passionate about that. I know that, uh, Craig. Um, the chairman of the board uh, has been uh, spending a lot of time in China, uh, interacting with folks and trying to convey uh, the value proposition that we offer. Because I worry that that is occasionally lost in translation and people just see this as, you know, a place to go uh, store open source projects. Uh, but, uh, so he's been, he's been working on that. We've had prior presidents who've spent a lot of time in Asia. Uh, we've even run Apache cons in Asia as, as trying to, to get that message across, um, of what we can offer. We, we may not be a fit for everything, but, uh, trying to get folks who are okay with our governance model and our culture, uh, acclimated to, to being able to do things here. Uh, I, I do think it's a challenge because uh, it's not going to stop with China. There's going to be other parts of the world that that have those cultural differences too. And, and we're going to have to to figure out how we communicate our culture and get those folks involved and, and adjust to, to their culture as well. That was my interview with David Nally, the Apache Software Foundation Executive Vice President. It was an interesting conversation, an interesting conference. I will be doing more of a write-up in the near future. If you have enjoyed the show, you can find previous episodes at christianchiller.com slash podcast. You can support the show at slash support, and you can find much of my writing at slash writing. Please rate, review, share wherever you found the show. And if you're interested in meeting me, I have a, a couple of events coming up where I will be running more interviews. Some I'm cancelling. I'm cutting down on my travel a little bit. I will be at O'Reilly's Velocity here in Berlin from November the 5th to the 7th. I will be at TC World in Stuttgart from November the 12th to 14th. And I will be at Data Natives again here in Berlin, November 25th to 26th. And actually some other events that I'm kind of confirming right now will also be coming up in the November-December period. If you want to get in touch, find me at christianchiller.com slash contact. Uh, in summary, you could tweet me at Christianch and find other methods there. I have some more interviews coming up soon. I have a couple of special interviews on voice games, which I'm looking forward to getting out. Some interviews I did with some gaming studios and a few more to come. But in the meantime, once again, if you have been, thank you very much for listening. (laughs) 